0: And once again, it is What's Involved. As always, good to have you along with us. Now, you know, I like finding and chatting to interesting people and people who have experience and who do wonderful things. And I get a lot of books uh, that come across my desk. And uh, one of them that I got is a book entitled Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom lessons from 100,000 years of human history. And the first thing I saw was economic and I thought economics and I was absolutely terrified. And I thought, all right, but hang on, let's let's have a look and see if it's something I can understand. And then I went one better and I decided I'd love to speak to the author. So uh, we say welcome to you, Professor Johan Fari.
1: Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks, David.
0: Okay, so we're going to get into the book in just a little bit. But give me a bit of um Johan's background where did you start how did you get into what you know where did you get to and what made you want to write a book
1: well uh I guess uh, a bit about me is that I, I studied at Stanamosh uh undergrad did economics and then postgrad as well and then uh was appointed as a lecturer basically immediately after uh as an as an actually a specialist in international trade and then through a weird serendipitous uh, conference, happened to bump into an economic historian, and um, and basically the rest is history. I, I kind of fell in love with the with the field. Um, did my PhD at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, and since uh, basically about a decade ago, I, I've been teaching economic history at at Stellenbosch in the economics department. Um, and and ultimately, the book is the culmination of a course that I've been teaching. Um, since then um, so I've had a lot of time to think about it uh, but ultimately when you know lockdown came uh, it was about um, I guess just sitting sitting down and writing it up uh, obviously classes had to move online um, and so we couldn't have the same interaction as before and I just felt the students uh, needed a bit more content than, than what they could get on a, in an online lecture so so ultimately, it was, it was never really the purpose to write a book for a public audience. But after a, after a couple of uh, chapters were circulated, the students came back and said, well, you know, I think their they family and friends would enjoy this as well. And so then, then the idea was born to actually make this uh, more widely accessible. Which I got to admit, it is
0: because, you know, when I was in school, that the, the whole concept of economics and business economics scared the laugh out of me. Um, And then along comes this book and I thought, hold on. So essentially what you've done is you've taken, if I can be so bold, you've taken economics out of the classroom, you've made it accessible and you've made it entertaining. Um, At least that's been my take on it. Is that the kind of feedback uh, you've gotten so far?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's also, you know, when people think about economics and certainly the economics that you encounter in your first, second and third year, um, you know, it's very kind of model-based. It's quite mathematical. Um, and what I've tried to do is to show that there's a different side, a human side to it, I guess, um, by incorporating history. Uh, and so we all love to tell stories. We, you know, we humans, we we love to learn uh, by listening to stories. And so the purpose here is really to kind of show that a lot of the historical stories, that the, the stories that we're kind of familiar with, and often associated with, say, political events, you know, history is filled with revolutions and wars and these kind of things, Um, or even social, cultural, often are underpinned by economic events uh, or economic kind of factors. And so, and that's really the purpose of the book is to show that economics actually have this huge, uh, hugely important explanatory power um, uh, in a lot of the things that we observe around us today. So it's not just uh, of course, those models are important. We want to, you know, predict what's going to happen in the future. We want to think hard about economic policy and 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 model, uh, you know, modeling these kinds of different macroeconomic relationships. For example, are important. But I think if we really also want to understand how valuable economics is to our broader understanding of the world, then then this is what this book tries to highlight. Okay, and and it it does. But but there's some fascinating. Bits in it. I
0: mean, right off the bat, okay. Uh, chapter one, uh, you ask the question there, and that's actually what got my attention initially: is who are the architects of Wakanda? Now, everybody knows the Marvel Universe and uh, the Black Panther, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to me about that. Why? Why that particular
1: title? Yeah, I think the the first chapter really just sets out, you know, the field almost of economic history. Um, and, and, you know, whenever I, when I, I get a kind of invitation to, to contribute to, say, a collected volume, um, it's to write the chapter on Africa. And then typically that chapter is, you know, towards the end of the book, it's uh, typically actually the last chapter in the book. And so Africa kind of is always left to the periphery in kind of uh, discussions on global economic history. And actually, uh, you know, that's certainly not, that shouldn't be the case. Uh, uh, and so the point really here is to show that uh, if you bring Africa in uh, from the outside and you kind of start uh, with with Africa at the kind of center of the discussion, there is so much that one can that we can learn from our history. And of course, it's not only a kind of recent history; it's it's a really deep history. And so the first uh, the chapter after that is is about the out of Africa migration. Um, and so that's that's really the purpose, I guess, uh, of the book is. And and, and I'm, I'm fortunate that it's now the book has now been. Uh, the international rights have been purchased, and so it will uh, hopefully get a global audience. Um, and the and the purpose really was to to show that uh, you know African economic history is at the centre, and Africa is at the centre of our understanding of of economics and and kind of development more broadly.
0: All right, but now how how do you how do you come to that specific conclusion?
1: Uh, you mean the Wakanda?
0: Well, not only the Wakanda, but that that we are at the centre because for so long we've been mm. marginalised. I mean, you know, the, the dark continent, the 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 shame those poor people in Africa, kind of things. Yeah. Now you're saying, but hang on, you know, this is where everything starts. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, I you know that's that's certainly true, and and to some extent it's understandable, right? So there's there's obviously a, a much longer written history in many other parts of the world, Europe, for example. And so one would you know and, and of course it's also England and, and Europe that experience an industrial revolution first and so there's a lot of firsts that that do not happen uh, in Africa but there's also a lot of things that do happen in Africa and, and I guess the, the kind of Eurocentric focus of global economic history courses have overemphasized those events and under emphasized a lot of the things that that did happen in Africa and, and we can go back uh, you know millennia um, and, and so there's a couple of, of chapters on this uh, there's, for example, a, a chapter on the Bantu migration, which is a, a, a you know a huge event in in world history. It's not only you know uh, have implications for Africa, but but global implications. Uh, but then there's a chapter, for example, on on you know the Mali Empire and uh, Mansa Musa and the incredible wealth that that he had uh, amassed during his during his life, and and you know he's still the only person you know the in, only individual to to single-handedly influence the price of gold. So. Um, it's it's a, um, I, I think a fascinating history. It's of course also a history uh, that perhaps have been underemphasized because it is only followed after, say, you know the thirteenth, twelfth century. So kind of this um, early medieval period in Europe uh, is kind of a you know a dark period. It's really only after that that you see. The emergence of you know, the scientific revolution, and, and then after that, the, the industrial revolution. Um, whereas in Africa during this time, it was a period of, you know, certainly in West Africa, and North Africa, period of, of kind of education, of, of uh, new discovery, of innovation, um, and 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 I think that's a, that's an important history to tell. And and I think the final thing is is even more recently, um, our view of Africa certainly has been, I think clouded by the events of, say, the 1980s and 1990s, when, when certainly African economic growth was paltry or even negative uh, in many cases. And there were terrible events, you know, from famines to, um, uh, to genocide that, that happened across the continent. Uh, but if you go back only, you know, four or five decades earlier, so so, so take the 1950s then uh, the average urban wage for an unskilled laborer in Africa was higher than it was in Asia. Uh, And so African comparative development actually, if you look back to the 1950s, which is not that long ago, uh, the future actually for Africa seemed very bright um, compared to, for example, Asia. And of course, we know what happened since. um, But the the point is that this idea that Africa has always been poor and, and we have to think about why that is uh, that's just historically inaccurate. Um, and, and uh, you know, more recent evidence where we collect wages, we've got a whole host of different innovative techniques that we use to try and understand different living standards at different times in history, uh, expose that those contradictions actually almost in the, in, I guess, the, the popular the mindset uh, of uh, that most of us obviously have. And so I think that's really what what the book also tries to highlight is that perhaps we don't actually know our own history that well. And, and if we do know it, then that kind of changes the way we think about our continent and, and perhaps even our own identity in it. Wonderful stuff.
0: My special guest is Professor Johan Fari. Uh, we're talking about his book, Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom. This is What's Involved. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back with my special guest. It's Johan Fari, uh, our long walk to economic freedom, lessons from 100,000 years of human history. Uh, Johan, I wonder if we could dive into to some of these, uh, these 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 chapters that you did because you've come up with such fascinating sort of head, headings for them. I mean, and, and I want you to help me out here and, and just give people a taste of what's in the book. What do Charlemagne and King Zuelatini have in common? Because... Off the top of my head, I would have said absolutely nothing, but uh, that's not true. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, I, I guess uh, you know most of us wouldn't think that there, there's any um, any link between them or correlation, but but actually, the, the two gentlemen share quite quite a lot. Um, uh, the focus of that chapter is actually on on feudalism, and so it's it's really kind of the feudal institutions that that you know. Uh, was present in in charlemagne's time around the year 800 or so um and and is still present in in many parts of south africa today right in the former in the former homelands uh with uh, traditional leaders and the traditional leaders you have very similar kinds of of institutions and and the, the point is really to kind of to to expose that and to show that you know the the, what we could expect in terms of economic growth in those places would be very similar then to what we could expect of uh, economic growth in in Charlemagne's time, which was which was pretty low. Um, and there's reasons for that. Those institutions create certain incentives, uh, and and those incentives are not always conducive to to improvements in productivity. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I, I can kind of focus, I guess, uh, again, the chapter is, you know, I've been, I've been blamed, I guess, a bit for, for clickbait titles. Um, I didn't think of them as clickbait titles, but, but the, to, to some extent, they, that's an accurate description. Um, but, you know, it's not only focusing on the, on the homelands, for example, the field institutions. We have, you know, even institutions that are similar to, to guilds. Um, uh, and so, you know, these are, you know, something like, the, like SICA, for example, the accounting profession is, is to a very much extent, share very similar characteristics than the, the guilds of, of medieval Europe, right? To kind of protect um, a certain profession, um, to, to not allow competition. Um, and so I, I think it's useful to sometimes have those comparisons because we think we've, you know, we've moved into a new era um, of free markets, but actually many of those those older institutions tend to persist even into the present,
0: which I find fascinating. Because I must be honest, uh, you know, before g- getting into this book, my grasp of of economics and macroeconomics was slim, to none, to say the least. I mean, um, I've I've spouted out to people before, you know, well you know, Africa and South Africa in general would have been a whole lot better off. But uh, remember how the rest of the world got riches by taking Africans and making them into slaves. That's been a favorite topic of mine. Um, and then uh, also, you know, in terms of um, people coming into Africa and, and South Africa and pillaging it. And then I generally end off one of those rants with uh, my, my feeling that Africa and South Africa... Is destined to become an economic powerhouse in the world. So, do your ideas that you put into the book fit anywhere within my very, very
1: flimsy framework? Well, I, I certainly share your view that the, you know there's the, we can be hopeful of the of the continent's future. Um, and and there's a, a chapter towards the end. Um, I think the second or third last chapter is is exactly you know why that. Could be and, and the focus there um, is very specifically on on services and, and exporting services. I think the you know the uh, the view of Africa typically is one where um, we think we tend to think of African history. The first thing is slavery, and then the second thing is colonialism. And of course, those were major events. And and there's chapters actually dedicated. I think two chapters on slavery and 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 a chapter on colonialism. And um, uh, but, but I don't think that should define the continent um, certainly if, as it has affected uh, its economic trajectory um, but it, you know the, the, the point of the book really is to, to say that if we want to if we want to kind of think about the, the lessons from economic history and what the the most telling ones are then it's then it's that you know uh, those that have been successful whether that's people or countries or regions or whatever uh, it's really about ingenuity and innovation and and productivity growth. Uh, you know, you get rich not by stealing, but by innovating. Um, and there's some examples of of that happening in Africa too. Um, so i would I would be cautious to say that you know the um, those slave traders became rich because they were trading uh, in slaves, yes, perhaps some of some of them in in a certain time period but certainly the industrial revolution england is not the consequence they're not rich because of an empire or because of slavery in fact the industrial revolution happens almost exactly at the time when slavery ends um, and you know slavery has been an institution that has that has persisted across the world globally throughout throughout human history so if slavery is indeed the reason for prosperity then um then you know that should have you know we should have had an industrial revolution much earlier. This is of course not to dismiss you know the incredible tragedies that came with slavery, uh, but but I don't think one should think, and certainly I think the economic history profession um, in general agrees that slavery is not necessary for economic growth. Right, uh, there are other kinds of ways. Um, innovation again, I want to stress, um, is the way to really prosper. Um, uh, and so, you know, you can, again, just also do some kind of back of the envelope calculation. The, the world is about eight times larger in population size than it was when, um, when kind of slavery ended. Um, but it's 18 times more affluent um, on average globally, right? So, um, so the average person is 18 times more affluent than, than the average person in the 1800. Um, and so we've just become so much more affluent than, than uh, we've ever been. And and that's not through exploitation, but again, through the innovation, the the, the new tools, the technologies that allow us to do more with less. Um, and and really, um, you know, the, the way I try to do it in the book, I guess, is to, to say, if you think about it as a, a kind of game of monopoly, we tend to think that this is the way the world works. It's like, you know, there's everyone gets an equal amount of money and then there's uh, ultimately one winner who ends up with everything and, and everyone else loses. And so it's kind of a zero sum game. Whereas I think a much better uh, metaphor would be like, uh, it is uh, Settlers of Catan where, I don't know if, if you know, listeners know what Settlers of Catan is, but it's a game where everyone starts with like a village and a town and ultimately the winner is 10 points. But by the end of the game, everyone has got a thriving civilization because you trade. Uh, and and you you produce resources, and 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 so I think that's the way to think about the world, um, it, rather than than a game where, for you know, certain individuals to to be better off, others must be worse off. I have to tell you, I I smiled when I got to that that
0: bit about the settlers of Qatar, and I thought the reason I'm smiling is that every single geek out there is going to know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and those of you who don't know, uh, it's a fantastic game. Man, you can have literally hours and hours and hours of fun. So, uh, no, that was that was something. And I love that analogy. You know, it's about um, you know, and there's 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 something that's been been coming to the fore more and more often. Is this whole concept of together we rise. And I think in terms of of you know South Africa and Africa. We, we we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, but when we come back, I'd like to chat a little bit more about uh, some of the the, the the chapters as we get to towards the, the end of the book, because you've got one there. Um, and it's all about uh, South Africa's industrialization. But uh, the chapter is entitled, How Did Einstein Help Create Eskom? I want to get into that when we come back. This is What's Involved. My special guest professor johan fari author of our long walk to economic freedom we'll be back in just a bit and we're back it is what's involved my special guest is professor johan fari talking about his book our long walk to economic freedom um as i said earlier and it, it's one of those things i love recommending books and talking about books that i get value from because i consider myself somewhat of an everyman um but uh, in terms of economics just to Help you understand a little bit more, and the way this book has been uh, put together and written is is brilliant. And Johan, you said initially when you did this, when you wrote the book, it wasn't intended for general public consumption, and yet it, it's you know when I think of you in terms of of being a lecturer and in um, you know the history of economics and economic history et cetera et cetera, I, I automatically default to. It's going to be dry and dusty, and you're going to want to stick needles in your eyes. Um, and this book is not like that. It's not this dry, dusty tome or treatise. Did you set out to do that?
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean, <laughs> I guess it's almost forced on on you if you're a, if you're a lecturer uh, because you have to get the attention of students, right? And and you now have to compete not only with, uh, I guess, coffee outside, but but students can you know. Uh, listen to podcasts, and they can they can download websites uh, and and visit websites on their phone, and and so you have to you have to grab their attention, and and so the way to do that is to tell interesting stories, um, and so it's a combination, of course, of you know it's not just stories, um, uh, because otherwise you know stories must have some kind of meaning, I guess, attached to them if 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 you wanna if you wanna learn something new um and so it's combining the i guess the the interesting little tidbits with um with a, a more profound uh, message and, and that's really how i try to, to do it also in each of these chapters i also try and keep the chapters pretty short so i think they're like two thousand to two and a half thousand words so that you know otherwise you just kind of you lose interest and 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 there are just other more interesting things maybe you know maybe uh it is a uh, it can, I guess, be also considered slightly superficial. Obviously, there is not a lot of depth uh, in these chapters. You, there's a lot more to say. There's a lot, a, lot, a much larger literature behind this, um, and and I guess that's why it's a it's an undergraduate course. If you were to you know specialize, you would you would go deeper. But I, I, that's you know why I think it is such an accessible uh, book because you don't need any any background in it, and, and you can read these stories and you can either just see them as stories or if you if you read between the lines, you, you might see uh, the the more profound message in them.
0: Well, it certainly it certainly has brought a couple of things into into a little bit more clarity for me. But you've got to tell me, please, how Einstein helped to create Escom, and did he foresee?
1: Current problems that we are having. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's a, that's, I guess, where the 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 valid critique is of a clickbait by title. So it's, I even mean, of course not Einstein who, who himself created Escom, but he was kind of indirectly responsible for it. Um, it's it's um, it's a fascinating story. I, I won't tell the entire story because because I think, I don't think we've got time. But, but basically, there's the South African student postdoc, really, who's who, who spends just before the First World War some time in Dresden in Germany. And, and he, he's basically asked, um, and I suspect it's because he can speak English, to host uh, this American uh, physicist from the University of Chicago, Robert Milligan. And uh, they walk the streets of Dresden and talk about their research. And, and actually Robert is there basically to present a paper that dismisses the ideas of, of Einstein and um, this postdoc, uh, the South African postdoc, listens uh, to this story, and he just uh, he doesn't agree with him. He says, "Well, you know, in my experiments, uh, I I think I found a way to explain what you have found, and it's not because Einstein is wrong; it's because you haven't thought about this specific thing." And um, this Robert Millikan is quite a famous professor already, and so he doesn't like this idea that that uh, this postdoc is telling him that his research is wrong, but But he presents his paper, he goes back to Chicago and then he realizes actually, well, this postdoc um, did have something uh, that, you know, there was some uh, validity to it, he publishes a paper and he ultimately wins the Nobel prize for it without citing this postdoc uh, incidentally. But he does reward him, he returned the favor by actually uh, getting him a job in in the US just before the outbreak of the first world war. And this postdoc's name is Hendrik van der Baal. So he becomes, uh, he starts working in the, you know, uh, telegraph, telephone industry. Uh, He basically designs uh, kind of uh, light bulbs as well for the First World War. He writes a textbook and then he writes this paper um, which Jan Smits picks up and reads and realizes this paper is about what South Africa's industrial future could be like. And then Jan Smits uh, presumably phones him up and invites him back to South Africa. And so he becomes um uh he's appointed in government and and basically is uh, appointed to establish escom and so that's really how how einstein was responsible for for, for escom's founding um and of course this is a uh, you know it's not only escom that he establishes he um it's also escor that he creates uh, and a host of different other government institutions that that is responsible really for the industrialization of south africa
0: a fantastic story then also we, we move on um, and in subsequent chapters we talk about um, apartheid and the economies of apartheid or the econo- economics of apartheid uh, one of the things that uh, you know people point out a lot these days is back in the good old days you know Escom still worked and um, arms Corps still worked and everything what what sort of impact did um, politics and, and apartheid have on our economics?
1: Yeah, I, I sure that's a that's a big question. I mean, there are two chapters dedicated to that period, right? To to the period. So the one is on the industrialization, and the other the other one basically tries to understand where did this um, uh, the kind of uh, money come from for government to to allow them to do a lot of these things. And and you know the, the main answer there is that it was the relatively low wages of uh, that was paid to black mine workers that allowed these high Mining profits, um, which which paid also for taxes, you know, to the government. Um, so it's it's an interesting um, it's an interesting period. I think um, uh, we tend to think of the that period. If you just look at the economic growth rate, I think a lot of uh, commentators typically would say, well, we you know the country had four or five or six percent growth rate for for a decade or two. Um, one should keep in mind that this is the period. Uh, um, uh, of kind of the golden capitalism period, where you know the entire world, at least the Western world, is experiencing massive growth, uh, post post World War reconstruction, um, and then of course South African resources are, are in high demand, and so again with low wages, uh, very high profitability of the mines, um, and of course also government investment um, in in uh, the infrastructure that we we typically associate with building a manufacturing industry, um, you do see the kind of relatively high uh, wages. But of course, we don't know what the counterfactual is, right? So that's partly, I think, the the big thing that economic historians think about is um, we can say yes, these were high growth rates, but in a counterfactual world where where you know labor was could be represented, for example, or where there weren't these discriminatory and repressive uh, labor laws like the color bar um, or um, other kinds of you know, uh, barriers against movement of people. Um, it's, it's entirely plausible that, that the growth rates could have been even higher and, and that the kind of spatial distribution of South Africa would have been very different. Um, and certainly the cities would have looked very differently. And we just don't know. We, just, we don't know what that history is. So, so it's very difficult to make a kind of normative claim to say, you know, this was good or it was bad. What um, what economic historians can pretty much do is to say, this is what happens. Uh, but we, so it's a kind of a positive uh, approach, but not a normative approach. We cannot judge whether that was good or bad. And, I, and, I, and unfortunately, I think that's often what people want to hear is whether, whether, you know, the, a value statement and that's just very difficult because because there's only you know one observation. We only have one history. We don't have multiple like a like a natural scientist where we have a laboratory and 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 many different uh, experiments. We we don't have that. So um, so I, in in in, in a nutshell, I think they, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. Um, but but ultimately, um, I would say that there were there were a lot of. Government involvement in the economy, and uh, typically when there are rules and regulations that prevent the market from that inhibit kind of market processes, uh, that usually doesn't um, uh, foster the kind of growth that one would see if those processes are absent or if those those rules and regulations are absent. Um, yeah, uh, I think that's that's okay. the best summary.
0: Good. All right. Uh, We are chatting to uh, Johan Farye about his book, Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom. This is what's involved. We'll be back in just a bit, and we're going to wrap it up with Professor Johan Farye. And we're back. It's what's involved. We're wrapping it up. My special guest is Professor Johan Farye, talking about uh, the book, Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom. Um, It's well worth a read, particularly if you want to get a bit of a grasp on uh, the history of uh, economics in our country and, and, and how the rest of the world impacts us. As we wrap up, though, Johan, I'm going to ask you, um, you know, where do we stand now in terms of, um, you know, we, we hear about uh, it's this thing called the second era of globalization. We hear about the fourth industrial revolution. Somebody was talking to me the other day about the fifth industrial revolution. Where are we now? Uh, From your perspective,
1: Uh, yeah, I've I've stopped counting also the industrial revolution, so I'm also not entirely sure what people mean when they say the fourth or the fifth industrial revolution. I think um, you know for for a uh, you know I'm quite an optimist. I I should I should kind of qualify whatever I say by by that. But I I think what I'm sensing is that there is a movement away from what was known as the Great Moderation, so a period, uh, say two or three decades where technology didn't really have the impact on on economic growth, right, so economic growth is just creating more value basically, so more production, higher incomes, these kind of things, Um, and that's really what we want, if we want to tackle the major issues like poverty and and unemployment, then then really growth is, is essential. And and for a long time, actually, globally, the, um, we've we've seen technological innovation. You know, we've got the internet, we've got mobile phones, but we, those things have not always translated into into the kind of classic economic growth that, that allows us to 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 see um, to see kind of higher living standards. Um, but but you know, my sense is that a lot of those things that have happened. Uh, are now being translated into the kinds of technologies, you know, various kinds of things like fintech or biotech um, that would actually see as improvements. So the vaccine is a great example, right? So we've we've already had this technology about de- for a decade, and yet it's now really only st- where we see its, its application and potentially not only to, to the coronavirus, but also to, to malaria and, and HIV AIDS, which would obviously have, immense implications for, for the continent. So um, so I think we, we're now entering a period where we, we hope to see, again, the, the ingenuity that I've mentioned before, the innovation, really translate into to higher growth. Of course, um, you know, that, that requires certainly a, a government that allows those things to happen. So one of the lessons certainly from, from history is that whenever there's innovation, innovation disrupts. And, and there's a status quo, and, and those with power typically want to prevent that that uh, disruption or innovation because it it threatens their their position in society. And these are typically the elite, the political elite. And 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 really, what we want is a, a society where where that cannot happen. Um, and and if it does happen, unfortunately, what we'll see is that the innovators will leave, right? Um, um, and so we really, if we want to see growth, we want to see the kinds of um, economic processes that allow us to, to tackle the, the issues of our time, then we have to, to benefit from, from those kind of innovations. And, and the nice thing is, I think, is that there's many countries in Africa where we see a lot of that innovation now being applied in, in new and innovative areas that are applicable to the continent per se. So we, you know, the way that we exchanging money on phones is, is very different to other places in the world. Um, and so again, I'm, I'm quite excited about about those kinds of innovations actually having an effect on on people's lives.
0: Absolutely. Look, I'm 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 an eternal optimist. You know, I, I do firmly believe, and and I was actually uh, chatting to uh, a gentleman the other day. Also uh, wrote a book called The ANC's Last Decade. A gentleman by the name of Ralph Matkega, and uh, he was also talking about in terms of growth and what we need and government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, But he's also very positive and he believes that there is this upswell of of people being more innovative, being more creative, being more disruptive and putting their hands up and saying, hang on, um, this is not working. Before I let you go, though, Johan, uh, can I ask you to do, and you did write a bit about it in the book, to do something that scholars shouldn't do. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is ask you to look into your crystal ball and uh, Tell me, tell me what you see and what the what you would hope or what you see the future would be for South Africa and indeed Africa. Mm.
1: But David, I think the, the partly the reason I wrote the book um, was that I realized that, st- that students are incredibly pessimistic of future, right? And and there's a reason for that. Um it's a valid reason, I think, is that they they've only experienced South Africa. In the last decade, um, so they basically don't remember the World Cup, right? So that's that's still. I mean, they were eight years old, so they for them that's ancient history. Um, so the, the South Africa that they know is the South Africa of the 2010s, and that's a South Africa with negative economic growth and um, and just you know pessimism uh, more generally, and so it's understandable that they don't don't see a place for themselves perhaps in the future, or they they feel like if they wanna have a better living standard than their parents, then they have to move elsewhere. But there's obviously a generation, if we go back just a little bit earlier, which felt exactly the same, right? The generation of the early 90s, where you've had a period of negative economic growth. There's, you know, South Africa to some extent were on the brink of a potential civil war. Uh, Education was terrible. There were these massive cleavages in society. Um, but within a 10 to 15 year period, we had a growth rate of 5%. We had a budget surplus. Uh, we had brought down our government debt from very high levels to you know lower than 30 30% to GDP. Uh, we had built a, an electric car in 2007. Um, you know the Jewel was at the Paris Motor Show, and it was thought to be you know this is South Africa's making this breakthrough. In, and it's of course just basically when Tesla was founded, um, and so you know if we if we just take that lesson and, and apply it to today, then what I would say is that you know we there's not um, it's not nec- it's not necessarily that things will be better, but they can be better, um, and you know if we implement the right policies, if we if you know uh, I guess also are. Uh, in some sense, take risks. Right? That's exactly what happened back then. Is there were entrepreneurs who, who founded things amidst this these terrible times, which actually ultimately rewarded them very handsomely. Um, so, if you know, we can be optimistic of the future. It's not that it's uh, uh, almost by implication gonna be a, a, a terrible decade ahead of us. Um, I'm not so. I'm not saying that things will necessarily be better. But I think we can be optimistic uh, of
0: the future. I would agree with you. And I think it's things like uh, yourself, your outlook on on our country and the African continent, the book, which is, as you said, now hopefully going to gain a a global audience. Uh, But also, you know, uh, this show, for example, I like to share stories of hope. I like to share stories of passion and I like to share African stories. And this is is a great way of doing it. Uh, the book is Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom, Lessons from 100,000 Years of Human History. Um, Johan, available in all
1: good, good bookstores? Is it available online as well? Yeah, it's uh, it's published by Tafelberg, so it should be in every bookshop. And um, it's also on Kindle.
0: There we go. A lot of people looking forward to that. So uh, get hold of that. Johan, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule and having a chat to us. I do appreciate it. Uh, we wish you everything of the best, uh, and uh, looking forward to some more writing.
1: Are we going to get some more writing? <laughs> well, not in the, in the immediate future. Uh, this uh, this the the writing is one thing, but the um, the process after the publication, right? The media engagement and is is actually quite uh, quite time intensive. So, um, so for now, I think I'm I'm I'll take a, a hiatus for a year or two.
0: Get back to doing what you do best. Anyway, Jan, thank you so much and uh, all the best to you. Thanks, David. There we go. Wrapping it up for this edition of What's Involved with my special guest there, Professor Johan Ferry, the book once again, Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom. Lessons from 100,000 years of human history. Go out, get it on your favorite platform, get it from a bookstore. Uh, It certainly is well worth a read. Wrapping it up, and to each and every one of you, look after yourselves, take care, and thank you for listening.